0: Welcome to the Asia Unbound podcast series. I'm Liz Economy, and I'm delighted to welcome Benjamin Zawaki, who is a longtime expert and resident of Southeast Asia and Thailand, and who's written a really important new book on Thailand that explores the development of the country through its relationships with both the United States and China. And he's joining us this morning from Thailand. Welcome, Benjamin. Thanks so
1: much, Liz. Thanks for having me.
0: So let's start with a really basic question for people who are not Asia experts. Can you just give us a sense for, you know, what is Thailand today? You know, what is the government like? And what is the sort of sense of society as you're living there right now?
1: Well, since May of 2014, Thailand has been under military government. There have been a number of sort of false alarms with respect to when a return to civilian government might take place. Typically, this happens within a, within a year or a little bit more of a coup. In Thailand, has had 19 coups since 1932. But Of course, this government has been able to, to last for about four years. It's looking like the election will be early next year. But one of the reasons it's under a military government, and has been now for four years, is because there was a political crisis in Thailand. It started really at the end of 2005, and I would argue continues to persist in Thailand. But many people would say, particularly proponents of the coup, that the crisis was brought to an end with the coup. The other thing to mention is that Thailand's longtime monarch, King Rama IX, passed away in October of 2016, and that also lent uh, some gravity to to the situation both before the coup because he was very ill, and of course after the coup in terms of managing the succession. So it's a it's a time in Thailand.
0: And is the military dictatorship, you know, very repressive politically? You mentioned that they're going to ostensibly have elections. But for the time being, is the atmosphere there quite repressive?
1: Well, it depends on your perspective. You know, there's almost like an aesthetic suit to repression. And, and in that sense, Thailand, uh, as it is aesthetically in other ways, almost seems benign. I mean, if you don't violate certain laws, and if you're simply a tourist coming in to enjoy the sun and the sand, and the beaches and the seafood and so forth, you'd never know, quite frankly, that it's a military government and, as you say, essentially a dictatorship. But in other ways, if you're an opponent of the, of the current government or you're a proponent, a definite supporter of the government that was overthrown in 2014, then yes, the government is quite capable and, and willing to, uh, you know, to detain you, to arrest you, and to subject you to a certain degree of, of difficult circumstances. So it really does depend on, on who you are and what your views uh, are at this time.
0: So you've written really a very compelling book about the country. And again, it's a lot about how it's navigated the relationship between the United States and China and how both those countries have have shaped Thailand in turn. But, you know, why did you think it was important to write this book? What's the significance of Thailand really for the United States, for U.S. policymakers?
1: Well, I argue that the geopolitical importance of Thailand is very seldom acknowledged. That Thailand, geographically speaking, fits Really in the center of Southeast Asia. It's, uh, is unique in that it is both a piece of maritime and mainland Southeast Asia, whereas most of the countries in the region tend to be one or the other, either geographically or in their outlook. And when you, when you look at what's happening in the region, what, what, what President Trump is calling the Indo-Pacific, you have Thailand sitting directly in the middle of, on the one hand, the Indian Ocean to to the west of Thailand, which segues into the Bay of Sandal, and eventually into the end of the sea, which runs right up against Thailand. And on the eastern side, you have the Gulf of Thailand first, segwaying into the, uh, the South China Sea, and eventually into the South China Sea's northernmost point, which is Taiwan. And the Straits of Malacca, of course, is right right smack in the middle. And all of these things, when you, when you understand the economic dependence of China on the Straits of Malacca, when of course you acknowledge, as everyone does, the, the strain that's going on in the South China Sea with respect to various territorial claims and competitions, and of course the ongoing tension vis-a-vis Taiwan that's decades old now, it really stands to reason that should there be a crisis, much less you know, conflict in the region over one or more of these issues, uh, Thailand is, is literally stuck in the middle. And I just don't think that's a a geographical fact, much less a geopolitical fact that the U.S. has paid very much attention to over the course of the past 20 years or so, in contrast to the Chinese that really have given it a, a great deal of time and attention.
0: Okay, so let's separate those two things out. You argue in the book that the United States, for the most part, has not gotten its policy toward Thailand right, that we've made a lot of mistakes along the way. What do you see as the most significant deficits in U.S. policy toward Thailand?
1: I think the most significant mistake is, is frankly, a lack of clear policies. It hasn't been that the policies have been so misguided, so much as they have not been formulated at all. And now, one exception to this, although albeit very late in the game, was the pivot to Asia, articulated by Secretary of State Clinton in October of 2011. While it only mentioned Thailand three times, and the, the, twice two, two of which were essentially just uh, sort of anodyne. Again, I would argue that that pivot came at least several years, if not a decade too late, but of course the U.S. has primarily bogged down in global War War and terror in the Middle East. And that's what really, I think, accounts for the language of the pivot. You read it carefully, it talks all about revitalization, renewing, reinvigorating, all of these words that suggest that something has been lost and needs to be brought back. And when you look at the, the recent past from that point, you see that most of U.S. policy, most of its talent, most of its... Human and financial resources were being devoted to a global war whose center of gravity was not in Southeast Asia. Even if you can, even if, even when taking into account the notion that the second front in the global war on terror was Southeast Asia, in, in particular Mindanao and the Philippines, but even then, with U.S. attention directed at Southeast Asia prior to 2011, it was very myopic. It was very single issue oriented vis-a-vis this war on terror. Whereas the Chinese the most part, we're seeing the region much more holistically. And then after the pivot, so once we finally get things right with the articulation of, of the pivot in 2011, was it, simply a, a beautifully articulated policy that was never implemented.
0: Mm-hmm. So you had a,
1: a policy vacuum in the run-up to 2011, and then a lack of action on that policy thereafter. Really, the result of the pivot, if we can still call it that, of course, this many years on, seven years on, is essentially 2,500 Marines in northern Australia and a handful of of ships and seemingly constant disrepair, docked in Singapore. And yet the cost of of announcing that without actually implementing it is that it predictably got the Chinese exercise as to what the U.S. intentions were, and then not to have implemented it means we didn't even reap the benefits of it, much less less not have to deal with some of the costs.
0: So I want to come to China in a minute, but before I do... You also mentioned that the United States, you know, started to work on a free trade agreement with Thailand, and then that sort of fell apart. We had an ambassador, Ambassador Kenny, who was seemingly highly competent, but couldn't quite navigate, it seems, between the various political factions. I'm wondering whether there's anything in the conduct of, you know, our policy on the ground that you think we should have been doing better, or we could do better.
1: Well human resources is probably the a country's most valuable asset, right? And when you look back at Thailand's relationship with the United States during the Cold War, albeit a much different time than Southeast Asia was, frankly speaking, far more geographically important than even I'm claiming it is today, we placed so much emphasis on getting the right people on the ground, people that knew the country, that had been there, that spoke the language, that had been the product of language studies programs and or area studies programs, we had three to four desk officers at the State Department devoted to, to Thailand alone in the, in the 20th century. Whereas as the 20th century became the 21st, we did have a supremely well qualified ambassador for the first, or well, for most of the, of, of the 2000s. But he was essentially, he and some of his, some of his uh, predecessors were essentially holdovers from that previous era that invested so much more time and effort. By the time Ambassador Kenny came into the ambassadorship in 2011, the ambassador who on paper, an extraordinarily accomplished and competent ambassador. She had recently been ambassador to the Philippines, of course, a, a fellow U.S. treaty ally in Southeast Asia. Uh, she was one of, I believe, only five career ambassadors within the Foreign Service, which is a rank that's extraordinarily hard to achieve. she done all this as a woman and, and so broken a number of glass ceilings. And yet, what it really her inability to navigate, as you say, between and among the political factions and to deliver difficult messages with the right tone and tenor when the the crew took place, was really the result of a reliance on a skill set by the State Department, as opposed to the years, if not decades, of training that I alluded to earlier. It's a sort of institutional uh, and systemic problem whereby the State Department uh, began to see it as acceptable to simply move people around the globe based on their level of competence and their and their skills on paper, without contextualizing those skills, and so in some ways, she, like her immediate predecessor, was more a victim of of a, of a State Department, I think, that has gotten away from area studies uh, and investing long periods of time in countries toward a model of of uh, of moving people every every three four years based on a host of other criteria.
0: Right. Now, of course, you know how Thailand develops. Uh uh, and its relationship with China and the United States depends not only on China and the United States, but also on, on you know, Thailand itself and the predilections of, you know, the, the Thai leaders. And you identify former Prime Minister uh, Thaksin Shinawatra as moving the country away uh, from a sort of American sphere of influence and, and more toward China. Uh, why was this? And, and, you know, do you think there was anything that the United States could have done to, you know, change the outcome?
1: Well, Texan, you know, love him or hate him, he had a vision for the country and uh, he in some ways could he was very economically minded, right? He came from a business background. He's an entrepreneur. He often frankly conflated his own economic interests in mm-hmm. with the country.
0: We're familiar with that he day, here now. <laughs> I said we're familiar with that here now. In the United States. Oh, yes we are.
1: Yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, thank you for for, for for saying that. That's that's Definitely true. And a and number of people have remarked on that out here that, um, you know, there are some, some more similarities than there, than there used to be. But in any event, when Jackson came to power in 2001, China's economy had declined the previous six years to a whopping 9%, right? And so he came in at a time when China's economy was, again, on the downward swing, but was still at an, at an extraordinary 9%. And over the six years of his tenure, it would go up to an improbable 14 percent, whereas the U.S. economy, although it was booming in the early 2000s, was being very much devoted to the war in the Middle East and to the global war on terror. And so although he, he maintained a relationship with the United States uh, vis-a-vis that war, a relationship that was often tense and strained and contentious, he frankly wanted to invest uh, on Thailand's behalf and on his own behalf into this. Economic juggernaut that was, that was China. And from there, given that for China itself, its economic expansion into Thailand is really just the, the, the sharp end of the sphere. right? I think for, for China, its economic growth is, is more of a means toward the achievement of geopolitical ends than it is an end in itself. Uh, but Trial, uh, Texan wasn't concerned with any of that. He was simply looking to grow the economy and be seen as, as a, as a 21st century Asian leader for Asians. In, in, in the Asian region, and so for him it was um, it was it was a marriage. It was really a marriage that worked, bringing the country closer to China, just as China was, was opening its arms to to Thai uh, initiatives.
0: And you you make a, a, a pretty significant point throughout the book about the role of Chinese in Thailand, because there's a a large Chinese community that's been there for, you know, beginning at least, you know, over a century now. And uh, what's the role of the sort of Chinese-Thai community in shaping the relationship with China and in terms of Thai foreign policy more broadly, do you think?
1: Well, I think it's it's more subtle than it would seem. I'm certainly not suggesting that there's some sort of conspiratorial theme going on whereby Thai-Chinese, and Sino-Thai, are trading their allegiances or anything of the sort that might have been vicious during the Cold War. All I'm really suggesting is that historically, the final ties into the Thailand were incredibly well integrated, although there were decades when there was a great deal of prejudice against them, a great, a great deal of legal restrictions against them that restricted their their access to education, access to the military, civil service. They had always been and continued to be the economic backbone of the country. And eventually, as economics became the first and foremost priority in Thailand and economic growth starting about in the mid-1980s, the, the Sino-Thai f- found themselves being welcomed beyond the economic sphere and into politics, into the, into the military. And, 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 and before one knew it, to be Sino-Thai was no longer uh, something to be ashamed of or something to hide or something to target as an but but something to be embraced. Because across them, all sectors in Thai society, not just the economic sector, you are seeing all sectors essentially increasingly dominated by the Sino-Thai. But it's important to point out that most of the Sino-Thai even themselves as Thai, first and foremost. Yes, they come from China, and yes, in recent decades, to embrace one's Chinese heritage, as Paxton certainly did, has become sort of trendy or in vogue, and certainly above, above board. But the, and it certainly does help in terms of growing the relationship. China. There's a certain cultural affinity that exists there that would simply not exist for, for obviously between, say, the Thai and the Americans, but most Americans in any case. But for the most part, it, it really, again, like, like Tuckson himself and his priorities, this coming of age of the sino time just sort of corresponded with uh, the rise of China itself economically. And so as the Chinese here became, sort of came out from the shadows and announced themselves on the... On, on the political stage and the military stage in Thailand, China itself was, was, was ready to to work with these people. And so, in that sense, the Sino Thai have really become Thailand's elite across, across the board.
0: So, if you look at Thailand at this very moment and how it's situated between the United States and China, sort of how would you define? The threads that would bind the United States to Thailand and the threads that would bind China to Thailand—you know—nominally, of course, Thailand is a treaty ally uh, of the United States, but clearly the relationship has been somewhat strained. So, what are those the linkages that you think are the strongest among, uh, you know, China and Thailand and the United States and Thailand?
1: Well, on the American side, it's, it's a relatively—it's a relatively short list. You have historical ties. <laughs> This year, in fact, there'll be a a 200-year anniversary sort of celebration with a number of events and commemorative moments marking 200 years of of, of relations. But certainly, even if we just go back as far as World War II, the post-war era of Vietnam, some of whom, some of whose uh, representatives are still with us today, although, again, the late King, who is the most high-profile representative of that era passed in 2016, but there still is a reservoir of, of historical goodwill that exists between the United States and Thailand. And that, I think, is something that will slip if it's not held onto more tightly and utilized as the generations change and as, as time moves on. But it's still there. So that would be the first thing. And the second would be what was implicit in your in your mentioning that treaty relationship. And that is the military relationship between the United States and Thailand. Again, going back to World War II and in that to really remains strong as we peak, the 37th incarnation of the Cobra Gold exercises, which are the largest multilateral US exercises anywhere in the Asia-Pacific region, are uh, being hosted, as they always are, by Thailand. But there has been, even on the military side, a slippage and some lack of innovation. Whereas on the China side, to answer that part of your question, it's in some ways an even shorter list which can be answered by the, by, by the word everything. I mean, they have historical... That, that were briefly interrupted during this, this sort of American interregnum in the latter half of the 21st century, sorry, 20th century, when the Chinese were seen as the, the communist bogeymen in the region and demonized as Dutch. But that era has just passed, and frankly, it's been passed now for 25 years, it's not longer. So those historical ties were briefly interrupted, but they've, they've come back in full force, as I mentioned, starting first and foremost with the Texans himself. And then you have the cultural ties, and all of them, the ties that the the Chinese have made such an effort to establish in the past 15 years or so political, diplomatic, uh, military relationships with the royal family, indirect relationships through ASEAN and regional mechanisms. It's really comprehensive and that's why I think it should be it's worrisome for the United States because they have simply far less to tap into than the Chinese do. and it's deceptive because one would have thought the opposite were the case and indeed 20 or 30 years ago it probably was the opposite. But now this, uh, this deep reservoir of, of, of china ties relationships and, and uh, history is being uh, rekindled.
0: So we have a new president here, and he is a president that pays less attention to the nature of a regime, right, whether it's a dictatorship or a democracy, than previous U.S. presidents have uh, tended to do. If you were advising President Trump What would you tell him, you know, would be the two or three things that the United States should either begin to do that we haven't been doing or should perhaps enhance in terms of things that we already are doing?
1: Well, in Thailand, the United States has tended to have a fairly, a set of mutually exclusive set of priorities. When there's an elected government, the U.S. tends to see Thailand as having checked the box of of, of democracy, of human rights, of the rule of law, it's as if democracy is being defined simply as the presence of an election in the absence of a coup. And so long as that's the case, the U.S. essentially sees that box as checked and deals then almost exclusively with its traditional national interests, things like political influence and economic growth and forced protection. But when a coup government is in power, as it is now, the U.S. has tended to focus exclusively Human rights, the rule of law, essentially its foreign policy values, um, to the extent where it essentially holds its national interest, hostage to these foreign policy values. So it's meant to be this mutually exclusive binary dynamic, whereby you can only focus on one side of the of the of the of the divide, but not both. And I think that's essentially a false choice. And if I were, you know, one looks at President Trump and, and one sees that maybe. Maybe he's on to this, because he recently invited, or, or last October rather, he invited Prime Minister General Prime to Washington, and one assumed that maybe he was, he was beginning to, 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 to shake things up. But what we've seen is that rather than simply add U.S. national, traditional national interest back into the conversation that has been dominated for the past four years simply by U.S. values, he has simply dropped those values from the conversation. So he basically just swaps, this exclusive attention to U.S. foreign policy values for exclusive attention on U.S. traditional national interests. And my feeling basically is that until on the left, the United States is placing its foreign policy values either below or above its national interests, but rather gives sort of equal attention to both sides of that equation. It's going to lose on both fronts. So I'm, I'm not optimistic about Trump's approach because I feel like it is simply the opposite of the Obama approach post-Coup, which so was to look strictly at values and hold, uh, you know, allow traditional interests to be held hostage. Whereas Trump seems to be of the opposite persuasion. Let's engage on the economy, on the military, on politics, on a whole host of, of traditional values or, or, sorry, traditional interests, but allow democracy and human rights and the rule of law to simply fall by the wayside.
0: So your advice then is basically to integrate them all, right? That that none should be placed above, all should be equal, and all need to be pressed forward on at the same time. Well, yes,
1: but I say that for strategic reasons. That really the ability to succeed on one's foreign policy values depends on succeeding on traditional national interests, and vice versa. And, and, and the proof of the pudding here is, is, is the Chinese. When you look at the degree to which China's model of authoritarian capitalism has been adopted and and embraced by Thailand's leadership across the political spectrum within Thailand, it's no coincidence that 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 comes at the same time that that Thailand's foreign policy is that much more friendly to China. In other words, the country that's able to best influence Thailand's domestic policies and domestic approach to governance is going to be the country that also has the, the most influence vis a vis promoting and protecting its own national interests. And we see this around the world. People say, well, you know, the U.S. will deal with anyone or the Chinese will deal with anyone. Yes, of course, but we have to deal with the way the world is. But there's no question that the United States would rather deal with Belgium than with Zimbabwe, and that the U.S. has far more leverage and far more, a far greater chance of success with a democratic country, a democratically elected country government and, and a government that holds some of the same sort of foreign policy values that the US has, then it's going to with a country that has a history of, of repression. And that's the same with, with, with China. And I think so so it's not just that you kind of ideally want to see values and interests on the same plane from a principled standpoint, but it's because even if you are more inclined to to be in favor of one side of that divide or another it depends on, on the side that you're not inclined toward also being being
0: protected. I think that is excellent advice, and I think we need you back here in the United States and back in Washington, not only to highlight underscore the importance of Thailand and U.S. Thai relations, but I think the what you've just said applies more broadly to U.S. foreign policy, certainly uh, throughout Asia and. I would, you know, guess also throughout much of the world. So thank you. You've written a terrific book and have a terrific set of uh, recommendations uh, for the U.S. moving forward. Well, thanks very much for having me. It's been really a, a privilege and an honor,